Shambhala Audio presents The Art of War, Session 3. We continue with the Art of War original text with commentary by the Denma Translation Group. The Nine Transformations Sun Tzu said, In sum, the method of employing the military. The general receives the command from the sovereign, joins with the army, and gathers the multitude. Every standard edition of the Sun Tzu contains these two lines. They are identical to the opening phrases of Chapter 7, but do not reproduce that passage in its entirety. They may be traces of a very early stage in the book's formation, when the place of these sentences had not yet been determined. Their presence here demonstrates the loose principles by which the Sun Tzu is structured. In spread-out ground, do not encamp. In junction ground, join with allies. In crossing ground, do not linger. In enclosed ground, strategize. In death ground, do battle. Conditions of the ground dictate the actions you can take. Spread out ground leaves you exposed to attack. Do not encamp here. The shared and ever-changing borders of junction ground require alliances with neighbors. The intense comings and goings of crossing ground make you vulnerable on every side. Hurry through it. Enclosed ground is hard to enter or leave, so you must plan carefully. Death ground is choiceless. Every activity, in life as in battle, takes place on a certain ground. Every ground suggests the response most appropriate to it. There are roads one does not follow. There are armies one does not strike. There are cities one does not attack. There are grounds one does not contest. There are commands of the sovereign one does not accept. It may seem that the military's objective is to overcome all obstacles. But there are some objectives one simply does not pursue. An enemy position may be too powerful. A ruler's orders may not be based on intimate knowledge of conditions. It is the general's responsibility to know the ground of each situation. As this shifts and changes, he must look freshly at every circumstance and make his decision. The military seeks not conquest, but victory. And so the general who comprehends the advantages of the nine transformations knows how to employ the military. The general who does not comprehend the advantages of the nine transformations, though knowing the form of the ground, is unable to obtain the advantages of the ground. When one orders the military but does not know the teachings of the nine transformations, though knowing the five advantages, one is unable to employ people. The five advantages are not specified, but may refer to the five grounds mentioned near the start of this chapter. The nine transformations are every possible manifestation of things, the general's treasury of knowledge. The world is in constant change, yet at each moment it appears as a particular quality, form, or sure. Knowing these, you can successfully employ the military. Not knowing these, any other knowledge becomes powerless 
if you do not also have the ability to transform endlessly, even the advantages of the five grounds become an inferior knowledge that will only restrict you. Therefore, the plans of the wise necessarily include advantage and harm. They include advantage. Thus one's service can be trusted. They include harm. Thus adversity can be undone. Therefore, subdue the feudal lords with harm. Occupy the feudal lords with tasks. Hasten the feudal lords with advantage. The general's promise and threat include the full range of action. Thus he can control the activities of both allies and enemies. And so the method of employing the military. Do not rely on their not coming. Rely on what we await them with. Do not rely on their not attacking. Rely on how we are unable to be attacked. Do not base your plans on what the enemy may do. Rely instead on your preparedness. Better, move entirely outside the grasp of their strategy, and you cannot be attacked. And so, for the general there are five dangers. Resolved to die, one can be killed. Resolved to live, one can be captured. Quick to anger, one can be goaded. Pure and honest, one can be shamed. Loving the people, one can be aggravated. All five are the excesses of the general, a calamity in employing the military. To overturn an army and kill the general, one must use the five dangers. One cannot but examine them. Willing to die for his cause, being pure and honest, loving the people, even virtues become vulnerabilities when taken to an extreme. The general's fixation offers an easy means to turn his energy back upon him. Simply put him into a situation in which his propensities become intensified and you find victory. Moving the Army Sun Tzu said, In sum, positioning the army and scrutinizing the enemy. The chapter addresses each of these two topics in turn. Taking position concerns finding places that maximize your strength. Scrutinizing the enemy explains how to gain knowledge of your adversary's conditions by examining the phenomenal world. Scrutinize is the word used for traditional physiognomy, the reading of someone's character from his or her face. In crossing mountains, hold to the valleys. Look out at life ground and take a high position. Battle downhill. Do not ascend. This is positioning the army in mountains. Mountains are difficult to cross, as they are full of dangerous and quick-changing sure. Enter only if you can obtain secure ground. In crossing water, one must distance oneself from it. When the invader approaches across water, do not meet him in the water. To order a strike when he is half across is advantageous. When wishing to do battle, 
Do not go close to the water to meet the invader. Look out at life ground and take a high position. Do not go against the current. This is positioning the army by water. Water makes for slow crossing, and one remains vulnerable for a considerable time. Take advantage of its ability to disorder the enemy's army. In crossing salt marshes, be sure to leave quickly. Do not linger. If one encounters an army in the midst of a salt marsh, hold to the water grass and keep one's back to the trees. This is positioning the army in salt marshes. Salt marshes are unpredictable. Ground you might consider unreliable in other settings could be your best defense. On plains, take a position on level ground. Keep the high to the right and back. In front, death. Behind, life. This is positioning the army on plains. Plains are open and easy, exposed in every direction. Rely on whatever advantages the terrain may offer, keeping the way clear for escape. All four are the advantages of the army, how the Yellow Emperor was victorious over the four emperors. In early mythology, the Yellow Emperor is the creator of warfare, defeating the emperors of the four directions. Like the four emperors, there are four kinds of terrain considered here. The ground of any situation, whether physical or psychological, has particular characteristics. These suggest certain cautions. The general's strength is limited. He positions his troops in relation to the terrain, seeking powerful sure that will magnify their force. In sum, the army likes the high and hates the low, values yang and disdains yin, sustains life and takes a position in the solid. This is what is meant by surely victorious. The army is without the hundred afflictions. Yang is light, open, active, and forceful. Yin is its complement. The victorious army retains the advantage of position, maintains its health, and remains firmly encamped, drawing strength from the environment. And hills and dikes take a position in yang. Keep them to the right and back. This is the advantage of the military, the assistance of the earth. By remaining above the enemy, you battle down. This is using the naturally occurring conditions of the ground to protect your forces. When it has rained upstream, the stream's flow intensifies. Stop fording. Wait for it to calm. Some conditions take time to run their course before they are favorable to your movement. If you face a surge of enemy force, it may be best to let it subside before acting. When crossing heavenly ravines, heavenly wells, heavenly prisons, heavenly nets, heavenly sinkholes, and heavenly fissures, one must quickly leave them. Do not go near. When I am far from them, the enemy is near them. When I face them, the enemy has his back to them. The particulars of these forms of ground are unknown to commentators. 
the dangers they conceal are clearly unworkable, however great the general. Simply leave them. Take position so that you direct the enemy into them. When alongside the army are defiles, ponds, reeds, small forests, and dense vegetation that can conceal people, search these carefully and repeatedly. They are where the devious take position. Confusion, murk, and haze, lack of clarity of any kind, are perfect hiding places for the devious as they interfere with your clear sight. When the enemy is near and still, he is relying on the steep. When the enemy is far and provokes battle, he wishes the other to advance. He is occupying the level and advantageous. This chapter has discussed responses to various types of ground. These lines mark a transition into its second part, which addresses scrutiny, reading enemy conditions from evidence in the phenomenal world. The enemy's positioning reveals their intention. In each case, they seek to engage you from configurations of sure that are disadvantageous to you. Many trees move. He is approaching. Many obstacles and thick grass. He is misleading us. Birds rise up. He is concealing himself. Animals are startled. He is launching a total assault. Trees, plants, birds, and beasts represent the fourfold division of the Chinese natural world. Because all its parts are connected, the environment around the enemy contains invaluable messages of their activity. By reading this environment, you are reading their designs. Dust is high and sharp. Chariots are approaching. It is low and wide. The infantry is approaching. It is dispersed and wispy. The firewood gatherers are approaching. It is scattered here and there. He is encamping his army. Even the dust speaks. This is not book knowledge. This is not even knowledge of the extraordinary and orthodox. This is a scout's observations from the field. Since anything that occurs affects everything around it, the smallest phenomenon leads you to the complete view. This is true from scout's knowledge to the general's total vision. His words are humble and his preparations increase. He will advance. His words are strong and his advance is forced. He will retreat. Light chariots come out first and take a position on the flank. He is deploying. He is not in difficulty yet requests peace. He is strategizing. They rush out to deploy. He has set the moment. Half of them advance. He is luring you. Having read the opposing general through his effect on vegetation, animals, and dust, now we read him through his words and deeds. But his actions may not directly represent his intentions. Look for contradictions between the two. They lean on their weapons. They are hungry. Those who draw water drink first. They are thirsty. They see advantage but do not advance. They are tired. These are indications of increasing devastation. First come signs of hunger, thirst, tiredness, exhaustion of the body. 
They are apparent as soon as military decorum and procedures are not followed. Thus the importance of maintaining the orthodox and of noting the enemy's apparently trivial deviations from it. Birds gather. It is empty. They call out at night. They are afraid. The encampment is disorderly. The general has no weight. Flags and pennants are moved about. There is chaos. Officers are angry. They are fatigued. They feed grain to their horses and eat meat. The army does not hang up their water pots, and they do not return to their quarters. The invaders are exhausted. Next are signs of disorder in the encampment, which reach an extreme in frenzied consumption. All regulations governing conduct and supplies are abandoned. He repeatedly and soothingly speaks to his men in measured tones. He has lost the multitude. There are many rewards. He is in distress. There are many punishments. He is in difficulty. At first he is harsh and later fears the multitude. He is utterly unskillful. He approaches with gifts and entreaties. He wishes to rest. The military is wrathful and faces one for a long time without either engaging or withdrawing. One must carefully examine this. Finally, we examine the enemy general's state of mind. As he is key to uniting the army, his methods of command immediately reveal conditions within his military. Here he has lost the Tao of leadership. By its very unpredictability, such an army can cause considerable damage. If its intentions are not fully apparent, be wary. In the military, more is not better. Do not advance in a martial way. It is sufficient to gather strength, assess the enemy, and take him. That is all. However, if one does not plan and takes the enemy lightly, one will certainly be captured by him. Victory arises from preponderance, which grows from knowledge and is expressed in mastery of sure. Do not seek it in accumulation alone. Do not waste resources in military display. The moment advantageous conditions arise, recognize them and direct your forces there. Swift victory is the general's goal. If the troops do not yet feel close kinship with one and they are punished, they will not submit. If they do not submit, they are difficult to employ. If the troops already feel close kinship with one and punishments are not carried out, do not employ them. The general establishes close kinship with those in his command. Thus, troops can execute their duties even under the most difficult conditions. Without bonds of loyalty, punishment is felt only as pain and causes resentment. With kinship established, punishment is understood as a matter of taking responsibility for one's actions. Then it expresses what is right and true. It must be carried out to maintain the integrity of this military world. And so assemble them by fellowship. Make them uniform by the marshal. This is what is meant by certain to seize it. In assembling an army, individuals are brought into association from many conditions. They become soldiers only when the general unites them. 
He creates such powerful bonds that all come to share the same intentions. Transformed by discipline and care, they can undertake their dangerous tasks together. If one acts consistently to train the people, the people will submit. If one acts inconsistently to train the people, the people will not submit. One who acts consistently is in accord with the multitude. One who acts consistently is in accord with the multitude. Literally, the text says that the general and his army gain each other. Thus the troops can die with him, live with him, and not deceive him. Consistent leadership allows people to develop confidence that their environment is intact and trustworthy, worth exerting themselves for. Otherwise, not knowing what to expect, they cannot relax into their world and fully assume their roles. Forms of the Earth Sun Tzu said, The forms of the earth, open, hung, stalled, narrow, steep, and distant. Although terrain is also discussed in other parts of the text, these six forms of earth are unique to this chapter. They are not only physical shape and dimension, but equally the qualities of ground, and the kinds of interaction that can take place upon it. I am able to go. He is able to come. This is called open. As for the open form, be first to occupy the high and yang. Secure your supply routes. If I do battle, it is advantageous. The open form refers to any space where you and the other can move freely in and out. Since it is equally available to both, you must be first to establish a strong position there. I can go, but it is difficult to return. This is called hung. As for the hung form, when the enemy is unprepared, I emerge and am victorious over him. When the enemy is prepared, if I emerge and am not victorious, it is difficult to return. It is not advantageous. Once this space has been entered, no one can move cleanly out. Whoever tries to do so will be snagged by some obstacle. Thus, take action only if you are certain it will lead to victory. I emerge, and it is not advantageous. He emerges, and it is not advantageous. This is called stalled. As for the stalled form, although the enemy offers me advantage, I do not emerge. I lead my troops away. To order a strike when half the enemy has emerged is advantageous. The stalled form offers no ready advantage. Enter only when the enemy have exposed their vulnerability. As for the narrow form, if I occupy it first, I must fill it and await the enemy. If the enemy occupies it first and fills it, do not pursue. If he does not fill it, pursue. The narrow form becomes advantageous only if you occupy it completely. Then there are no options left to the enemy. As for the steep form, 
If I occupy it first, I must occupy the high and young and await the enemy. If the enemy occupies it first, I lead the troops away. Do not pursue. Great promise of advantage, great danger. If you cannot secure its benefits, avoid this form of the earth. As for the distant form, since sure is equal, it is difficult to provoke battle. To do battle is not advantageous. There is no way to engage the enemy. You can offer no apparent advantage to draw them out. There is no clear way in, and you have no obvious preponderance. All these six are a Tao of the earth, the general's utmost responsibility. One cannot but examine them. The earth, or the ground of any situation, offers certain conditions within which battle can take place. One must respect these conditions and follow the actions they dictate. They cannot be manipulated. The ground of conflict is shared, and these six forms of the earth belong to no one. Their sure change constantly as we move through them. Thus the narrow can become the steep, which can become the distant. These forms of sure can be discerned in any situation. These are called a Tao of the earth, standing for the countless ways the earth takes form and human beings join with it to form sure. It is the general's responsibility to know them all. This is not done by knowing just these six, nor by knowing every possible one, but by seeing how this knowledge forms a whole. And so in the military there is driven off, the bow unstrung, dragged down, the mountain collapsing, chaos and routed. All these six are not a calamity of heaven. They are the excesses of the general. Battle occurs in a particular ground, but it is the general who determines what takes place there. If he does not fulfill his proper role, he brings heaven-like calamity upon his forces. Now Shur is equal, and he uses one to strike ten. This is called driven off. Two forces have equal advantage of the earth. If the general sets his smaller force against the enemy's larger, he will be put to flight. The troops are strong and the officers weak. This is called the bow unstrung. Strong forces without leadership are a weapon without a trigger. The officers are strong and the troops weak. This is called dragged down. Even the strongest officers cannot hold up weak troops. A great officer is wrathful and does not submit. When he encounters the enemy, he is filled with rancor and does battle on his own. The general does not know his ability. This is called the mountain collapsing. An officer's fierce wrath turns to rage in the face of battle, bringing down the army with him. His general had no knowledge of this propensity. The general is weak and not strict. His training and leadership are not clear. The officers and troops are inconstant. The formations of the military are jumbled. This is called chaos. When the general does not lead, the army cannot follow. All becomes confusion. The general cannot assess the enemy. With the few, he engages the many. 
With the weak, he strikes the strong. The military is without elite forces. This is called routed. Without knowledge of the enemy, the general commits catastrophic errors. All is lost. All these six are a dial of defeat, the general's utmost responsibility. One cannot but examine them. Like the forms of earth, these six are a Tao. Taken as a whole, they represent the multiplicity of ways in which the general will be defeated before battle ever takes place. He must know the dangers of them all. Now forms of the earth are an assistance to the military. Assess the enemy and determine victory. Appraise the steep and level, the far and near. This is a Tao of the superior general. One who knows these and employs battle is certainly victorious. One who does not know these and employs battle is certainly defeated. These are three kinds of knowledge that the general possesses. He discerns the true forms of earth, and their assistance arises naturally for him. He sees the strength and weakness of his enemy and their leadership. He can read the sure of varied landscapes and circumstances. Knowing these as a Tao brings victory. And so, when according to the Tao of battle there is certain victory and the ruler says, Do not do battle, one can certainly do battle. When according to the Tao of battle there is no victory and the ruler says, One must do battle, one cannot do battle. The sovereign chooses the general for his ability to attain victory. Final judgment about doing battle is the general's responsibility alone. That determination arises from his full knowledge of battleground conditions, where advantage constantly transforms and shifts. Respecting the ruler's confidence, discerning the present moment, and trusting his judgment, the general finds victory. And so he advances, yet does not seek fame. He retreats, yet does not avoid blame. He seeks only to preserve the people, and his advantage accords with that of the ruler. He is the treasure of the state. The general remains attuned to the vision of the sovereign and the welfare of the people. Thus he is not confused by praise, blame, or reputation. As nothing can prevent him from proper action, he keeps to victory by taking whole. He looks upon the troops as his children, Thus they can venture into deep river valleys with him. He looks upon the troops as his beloved sons. Thus they can die together with him. United in profound kinship with their general, the troops respond with uncompromising loyalty. They will obey every order. They will accompany him anywhere, into grave danger, into death. He is generous, yet unable to lead. He is loving, yet unable to give orders. He is chaotic and unable to bring order. They are like spoiled children. They cannot be employed. By themselves, virtues such as kindness or love are ineffective means of leadership. They must be fully joined to clear discipline before they foster a natural hierarchy of things. The general must be soft and hard, a proper yes and a proper no. Only then can his army arise in order. Knowing my troops can strike, 
yet not knowing the enemy cannot be struck, this is half of victory. Knowing the enemy can be struck, yet not knowing my soldiers cannot strike, this is half of victory. Knowing the enemy can be struck, knowing my soldiers can strike, yet not knowing that the form of the earth cannot be used to do battle, this is half of victory. This is the initial summary of the chapter. Knowledge of self and other is vital to the general in every endeavor. Yet it is insufficient without knowledge of the ground, the environment within which battle occurs. And so one who knows the military acts and is not confused, initiates and is not exhausted. This is the second summary of the chapter. The general is clear-minded and inexhaustible. His clarity arises from his intimate knowledge of the military, and thus his actions lead to victory even in conditions of chaos. He is not depleted because he gains energy by moving with the forms of earth, the larger patterns of his world. And so it is said, Know the other and know oneself, then victory is not in danger. Know earth and know heaven, then victory can be complete. In ancient China, Heaven stands for the range of phenomena from weather to celestial process to the imperial vision. Earth extends similarly from terrain to the practical grounds of any activity. Danger can be avoided by knowing self and other. Being all victorious depends on knowledge of heaven and earth. The Nine Grounds Sun Tzu said, The Method of Employing the Military This chapter speaks to a multitude of military methods. The first two-thirds addresses the Nine Grounds and command of troops within enemy territory. Then the Nine Grounds are discussed again, and the chapter turns to general military matters. There is dispersed ground, light ground, Contested ground, connected ground, junction ground, heavy ground, spread out ground, enclosed ground, and death ground. The feudal lords battle for this ground. This is dispersed. All parties consider this ground important, and there are no means to gain easy advantage. Do not fight over it. I enter another's ground, but not deeply. This is light. Do not engage or make a commitment here. The sure is not yet favorable. If I obtain it, it is advantageous. If he obtains it, it is also advantageous. This is contested. Since anyone can benefit from possessing this ground, your enemy will surely want it. Prevent this. Use care in initiating an attack. I am able to go. He is able to come. This is connected. Because this ground is equally available to all, everyone is vulnerable. Cross only if you are well protected. Establish ties where it is possible. 
Where the grounds of three feudal lords meet, the one who arrives first will obtain the multitudes of all under heaven. This is junction. This boundary is shared, and each of the three parties has a home base nearby. If you are first to establish yourself strongly, you can dominate all. This will require allegiances. I enter another's ground deeply, with many walled cities and towns at my back. This is heavy. Since you are deeply committed, keep your forces tightly gathered. With no possibility of support from home, you must be self-sufficient. I move through mountains, forests, and swamps in some roads difficult to move along. This is spread out. In such places, it is easy for the enemy to establish threatening positions. Do not linger. The way by which I exit and enter is narrow. The way by which I pursue and return is circuitous. His few can strike my many. This is enclosed. With access limited and pathways indirect, this ground promises great danger. All forms of sure work in the enemy's favor. You must block his access to them. Only careful planning will see you out. If quick, I survive. If not quick, I am lost. This is death. No choice but to do battle. Everything will be won with swift action or lost without it. Therefore, in dispersed ground do not do battle. In light ground do not stop. In contested ground do not attack. In connected ground do not cross. In junction ground join with allies. In heavy ground plunder. In spread out ground move. In enclosed ground strategize. In death ground do battle. Four of these nine grounds are discussed at the beginning of chapter 8. All nine also appear again in the middle of this chapter. This passage demonstrates the great utility of naming. Nine times it captures a complex relationship in a phrase or two, such as, I am able to go, he is able to come. Then it reduces that to a single word, this is connected. In conclusion, it offers pith advice. In connected ground, do not cross. Once you have the name, you have captured the essence, and your more complete knowledge of the situation readily arises. Then it is easy to see the great variety of responses that may be called for. These nine are not exhaustive. Instead, they urge us to build our repertory of understanding to begin to master all possibilities that may arise. In ancient times, those called skilled at battle were able to prevent the enemy's van and rear from reaching each other, the many and the few from relying on each other, noble and base from helping each other, superior and inferior from coordinating with each other, separated troops from regrouping, the assembled military from becoming uniform. Separate that which holds the other together, kinship, alliances, coordination, the root of their strength. When that unity is cut, what was a single Tao 
becomes many parts. Thus, one skilled in battle cuts down the enemy's strategy. If it accords with advantage, then act. If it does not accord with advantage, then stop. Advantage is anything that brings victory. For the sage commander, there is no other motivation to action. Dare one ask, the enemy amassed and in good order is about to approach. How do I await him? I say, seize what he loves, and he will heed you. Do not confront the enemy in their strength, but seize something they hold dear. Their force is useless here. They must stop to listen. You need not destroy the enemy's cherished object or their forces. Instead, you can take them whole. Anything you cherish makes you vulnerable. Prepare yourself to relinquish it. It is the nature of the military that swiftness rules. Ride others' inadequacies. Go by unexpected ways. Attack where he has not taken precautions. Attack swiftly where the enemy is weak, where they are not, where they are undefended. These are the empty. Your momentum only increases because they offer no resistance. These are means of skillful movement. In sum, the Tao of being an invader. Enter deeply and one is concentrated. The defenders do not subdue one. Plunder rich countryside. The three armies have enough to eat. Carefully nourish and do not work them. Consolidate chi and accumulate strength. Move the military about and appraise one's strategies. Be unfathomable. Hostile ground heightens your focus. Cut off from home support, you take nourishment from the enemy. Such supply lines cannot be severed. Use the threat surrounding you to stay gathered and sustain your troops. Varying your forms, plans, location, and intention, you cannot be known. Throw them where they cannot leave. Facing death, they will not be routed. Officers and men facing death, how could one not obtain their utmost strength? When military officers are utterly sinking, they do not fear. Where they cannot leave, they stand firm. When they enter deep, they hold tightly. Where they cannot leave, they fight. Therefore they are untuned yet disciplined, unsought yet obtained, without covenant yet in kinship, without orders, yet trusting. Extreme situations cause your troops to respond from profound sources of power. Training and commands cannot accomplish this. Dire configurations of sure, however, automatically evoke it. It is unsought, yet attained. Prohibit omens, remove doubt, and even death seems no disaster. When soldiers face death, the structures of military life become irrelevant. In such extreme conditions, one can let go of omens or doubts, the mirage of mysterious forces and second thoughts. As smaller reference points dissolve, everything turns clear and immediate. Even death, the ultimate point of reference, has no special power. My officers do not have surplus wealth. 
It is not that they hate goods. They do not have surplus debts. It is not that they hate longevity. On the days that orders are issued, the tears of seated officers moisten their lapels. The tears of those reclining cross their cheeks. Throw them where they cannot leave. It is the bravery of Chuan Chu and Cao Gui. Juan Zhu and Zhao Gui were military retainers known for acts of outrageous courage. Their tales from the 6th and 7th centuries BCE are recounted in the historical records. Your troops are ordinary human beings. They love goods and hate death. They can be overcome by their emotions. Such attributes might call into question their appropriateness for military service. But these qualities are what make them effective soldiers. Bravery arises from cowardice. Threatened with loss of life, they fight desperately to survive. Placed in the right sure, their natural response unleashes enormous power. And so one skilled at employing the army may be compared to the Swairan. The Swairan is a snake of Mount Hung. Strike its head and the tail arrives. Strike its tail and the head arrives. Strike its midsection, and both head and tail arrive. Dare one ask, can one then make them like the Shuairan? I reply, one can. The people of Yue and the people of Wu hate each other. When they are in the same boat crossing the river, they help each other like the left and right hand. Though there are various accounts of the Shuai Ran in Chinese mythology, this is the earliest recorded reference to it. Yue and Wu were bitter rivals in the 6th century BCE. Sun Tzu is said to have assisted the ruler of Wu in his defeat of Yue, though his name does not appear in the historical records of that conflict. The Shuai Ran is perfectly coordinated with itself. It is instinctively of one mind. In the right conditions, even otherwise opposing elements join as one body. Here, those conditions are the threat of death, which evokes powers comparable to those of the mythic world. Therefore, tying horses together and burying wheels is not enough to rely on. Make bravery uniform. This is a Tao of governance. Attain both hard and soft. This is a pattern of earth. The Chinese word for governance implies correcting or making orthodox. Placing physical objects between you and the enemy will not defend you from their attack. Instead, transform your soldiers. Find sure that unifies them in mind so that extremes of cowardice or bravery are moderated. This is skill in ordering. At the same time, master the natural world. Hard and soft are forms of earth and also the qualities of any situation. To take it whole, you must be able to hold all possibilities and extremes. And so one skilled at employing the military takes them by the hand as if leading a single person. They cannot hold back. Your command is so intimate the troops hear you as if you were speaking singly to each of them. United in this kinship, they cannot but follow you. In his activity, the commander is tranquil and thus inscrutable. 
orthodox, and thus brings order. He is able to stupefy the ears and eyes of officers and troops, preventing them from having it. He changes his activities, alters his strategies, preventing the people from discerning. He changes his camp, makes his route circuitous, preventing the people from obtaining his plans. To be invisible, you must first be so orthodox that nothing remains to give you away. Then you must be so extraordinary that no one can predict your location or purpose. You must be equally ungraspable to your own troops. This is for their safety as well as the authority of your command. The leader sets the time of battle with them. By climbing high and removing the ladder, the leader enters with them deep into the land of the feudal lords, pulling the trigger. Like driving a flock of sheep, he drives them there, he drives them here. No one knows where they are going. He gathers the multitude of the three armies and throws them into the defile. This is what is meant by the activity of the commander. The general is responsible for victory. Thus he throws his troops into circumstances that realize their greatest strength, setting the moment of its release. They must be allowed no knowledge of these conditions. They can have no choice but to follow him. In times of extreme peril, such decisive action is not only effective, it may be one's only means of survival. Success depends on the troops' utter loyalty. The variations of the nine grounds, the advantages of contracting and extending, the pattern of human nature, one cannot but examine them. Here the chapter is summarized in terms of its three major themes, which are three kinds of knowledge the general must possess. First are the nine grounds, forms of sure and the advantage that comes from each. Second are principles of movement, either withdrawing from the enemy or expanding one's position. Third is knowing human nature, which allows the general to predict troops' reactions to varied circumstances. The chapter then begins again, reintroducing the nine grounds and moving to general military matters. In sum, being an invader, deep then concentrated, shallow then dispersed. To leave the state and go over the border with soldiers, this is crossing ground. Four ways in, this is junction ground. To enter deeply, this is heavy ground. To enter shallowly, this is light ground. Unyielding at the back, narrow in front, this is enclosed ground. Unyielding at the back, enemy in front, this is death ground. No way to leave. This is exhaustion ground. This initial set of seven grounds includes exhaustion ground, which is found only in the bamboo text. Of these seven, five are included among the following set of nine. Therefore, in dispersed ground, I will unify their will. In light ground, I will make them come together. In contested ground, I will keep them from lingering. In connected ground, I will make firm my ties. In junction ground, I will be careful of what I rely on. In heavy ground, 
I will hasten to bring up my rear. In spread-out ground, I will advance along his roads. In enclosed ground, I will block the gaps. In death ground, I will show them that we will not live. These nine grounds are identical to those presented at the start of this chapter. The pith instructions from that section are rendered here with somewhat varied emphases. And so the nature of the feudal lords. When enclosed, they resist. When there is no holding back, they fight. When overcome, they follow. Creating barriers intensifies the space that they enclose. The enemy hardens their position. When all alternatives are closed off, the enemy's resistance turns into battle. Then they will go along with you only after having been thoroughly overcome. Therefore, not knowing the strategies of the feudal lords, one cannot ally with them. Not knowing the form of mountains and forest, defiles and gorges, marshes and swamps, one cannot move the army. Not employing local guides, one cannot obtain the advantage of the ground. Not knowing one of these four or five, one is not the military of the kings and overlords. Kings were the rulers of states in the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE. Overlord was the title of several rulers who briefly established hegemony over the others. The first six lines appear verbatim in chapter 7, suggesting that this part of the chapter is especially loose in organization. The passage reiterates the importance of knowledge to any form of action. The final two lines, however, show that it is necessary to possess all these types of knowledge, transforming this section from a list of observations to a list of essentials. The military of those kings and overlords, if they attack a great state, then its multitude is unable to gather together. Their awesomeness spreads over the enemy, and his allies cannot assemble. Therefore, do not contend for allies in all under heaven. Do not cultivate balance in all under heaven. Trust in self-interest. Spread one's awesomeness over the enemy. Thus his state can be seized, and his walled cities can be made to submit. Your great power prevents the enemy from forming a cohesive unit or joining with their peers. Thus you attack their alliances. The overlords obtained hegemony through the careful balancing of allies and enemies. Work instead from your own power to overawe, drawing the other fully into your world. This is victory, which comes always from the larger reference point. Without methods rewards, without proper orders, bind the multitude of the three armies, as if leading a single person. Bind them with deeds, do not command them with words. Bind them with harm, do not command them with advantage. Mire them in the ground of extinction, and still they survive. Sink them in death ground, and still they live. Now the multitude is sunk in harm, yet still they are able to make defeat into victory. Without resort to hope and fear, consistency or kindness, discarding all conventions of leadership, the general binds the troops to him. He relies not on words, but on action that cuts to the bone, 
bypassing concept and kindness. Thrown into the certainty of death, his troops transform hopelessness into victory. And so conducting the affairs of the military lies in carefully discerning the enemy's purpose. Concentrate strength in one direction. Go 1,000 li and kill his general. This is what is meant by skillful deeds. If you know the enemy's purpose, you can find their vital point. Focus your energy there and strike. Thus, you can end the conflict with a single blow, even from a great distance. You need not destroy their goods or people. This is taking whole. Therefore, on the day the policy is initiated, close the passes and break the tallies. Do not let their emissaries pass. Hone it in the upper court in order to fix the matter. In ancient China, a messenger from the field proved his genuineness by producing the other half of a wooden tally, which had previously been split between commander and sovereign. Here, all tallies are destroyed. The moment war is declared, abruptly change the protocols of diplomatic relations. Secure your boundaries and plan at the highest level. When the enemy opens the outer gate, one must quickly enter. Make what he loves the first objective. Hide the time of battle from him. Discard the ink line and respond to the enemy in order to decide the matter of battle. Therefore, at first be like a virgin. The enemy opens the door. Afterward, be like an escaped rabbit. The enemy will be unable to resist. The ink line is the equivalent of the carpenter's chalk line. It is snapped to ensure that marks are drawn straight. When obstacles disappear during battle, move quickly to seize the crucial goal. Prevent the enemy from re-establishing equilibrium. At this point, you must discard the even measures that have been essential to your process so far and respond to whatever form the enemy offers. Just as water determines its movement in accordance with the ground, the military determines victory in accordance with the enemy. Innocence disarms. Swiftness is victorious. Attack by Fire Sun Tzu said, In sum, there are five attacks by fire. The first is called Setting Fire to People. The second is called Setting Fire to Stores. The third is called Setting Fire to Baggage Trains. The fourth is called Setting Fire to Armories. The fifth is called Setting Fire in Tunnels. In ancient China, siege parties sometimes tunneled under city walls. One means of defense was to pump poisonous gas into the invader's tunnel. Modern warfare can be considered the age of fire, as it depends on technologies that range from gunpowder to thermonuclear weapons. Though the scale in this chapter is much smaller, the principle is the same. 
fire consumes and devastates. It is a primordial element, immediately directing the enemy's attention to the most critical factors. Thus, its power to abruptly transform a situation is greater than other forms of direct attack. Making fire has requisites. The requisites must be sought out and prepared. There is a season for setting fires. There are days for starting fires. The season is when heaven is dry. The days are when the lunar mansion is the winnowing basket, the wall, the wings, and the chariot platform. All four lunar mansions are days when the wind rises. The Chinese divided the celestial sphere into 28 equal sections, like segments of an orange. These are the lunar mansions, named for the constellation at the horizon that marks each segment. Heaven and earth set forth the conditions in which fire can be employed. The earth provides the materials necessary for fire building, and heaven periodically offers the optimum meteorological conditions. Employ fire only when events support it and conditions are auspicious. If fire is set inside, respond immediately from the outside. If fire is set and his military is still, do not attack. Rush to where the fire is calamitous. If one can pursue them, then pursue. If one cannot pursue, then stop. If fire can be set outside, do not wait to set it inside. Set it according to the season. Go to the point of greatest calamity. Don't assume fire has made the enemy vulnerable. Keep your energy gathered and move only to take advantage of their confusion. Since it is easier to set a fire on the outside of the enemy's protected space, do so if the opportunity arises. If fire is set upwind, do not attack from downwind. If during the day wind is prolonged, at night the wind will stop. One must know the variations of the five fires. Use counting to watch for the time. Counting refers to the calculations, astronomical and calendrical, by which one determines the proper time for fire-making. As with any natural force, fire's powers are subtle, varied, and intense. The general must know the basic types and their innumerable variations. This requires the ability to discern natural patterns on both a small and large scale. And so one who uses fire to aid an attack is dominant. One who uses water to aid an attack is strong. Water can be used to cut off. It cannot be used to seize. Water can be used to cut off. The reference is to events like the diversion of the river Jin, used to surround and flood the city Jinyang in the 5th century BCE. The siege is said to have lasted three years. Water can strengthen you, but using fire is an outrageous act to which the enemy cannot but respond. It can bring closure to a campaign. Now battle for victory. Attack and attain it. But if one does not follow up on the achievement, it is inauspicious. One's fate is wealth flowing away.
Thus it is said, the enlightened ruler contemplates it, the good general follows up on it. When you have committed to extreme action, be prepared to take advantage of the chaotic conditions you create. Winning on the battlefield is an initial step toward victory. Unless you can extend this achievement, its value is lost. This depends both on the enlightened ruler's vision and on his general's ability to bring it to fruition. If it is not advantageous, do not act. If it is not attainable, do not employ troops. If it is not in danger, do not do battle. Victory is the general's goal. Do not engage in military activity if no benefit will accrue from it. The ruler cannot raise an army on account of wrath. The general cannot do battle on account of rancor. If it accords with advantage, then employ troops. If it does not, then stop. Wrath can return to joy. Rancor can return to delight. An extinguished state cannot return to existence. The dead cannot return to life. Thus the enlightened sovereign is careful about this. The good general is cautious about this. These are a dial of securing the state and keeping the army whole. The nature of most polarities is that they are reversible. These include like and dislike, or the extraordinary and orthodox, which turn quickly each into the other. Life and death succeed each other, like the waxing and waning moon. But human dead do not come back to life, nor does the extinguished state return to protect its people. Attack by fire and other unremitting applications of force cause irreversible destruction to every part of life. If loosed in wrath, the opportunity for advantage is lost as well. Since his objective is to safeguard state and army, the general must use them only as part of taking whole. Employing Spies Sun Tzu said, In sum, when raising 100,000 soldiers and setting out on a campaign of 1,000 li, the expenses of the hundred clans and the contributions of the nation are 1,000 gold pieces a day. Inner and outer are disturbed. People are exhausted on the roads. 700,000 households are unable to manage their affairs. Virtually all these phrases are also found in Chapter 2's Critique of the Costs of War. They demonstrate the way this text is assembled from a pool of shared terms and concepts. Responding to conflict with massed aggression is severely damaging to one's world, from immediate concerns to international relations. On guard against them for years to contend for a single day's victory Yet by begrudging rank and the reward of a hundred gold pieces, he does not know the nature of the enemy. He is utterly inhumane. He is not the general of the people. He is not the assistant of the ruler. He is not the ruler of victory. 
Each day the army is in the field costs 1,000 gold pieces. Yet real knowledge of the enemy can give you victory in a day. Such knowledge can only be obtained through spies. The general may be reluctant to employ spies. He must honor them with the same reward and rank as his bravest soldiers. This may seem like compromising the integrity of the military. Yet in adopting that view, he prolongs the destruction of human life, undermines his sovereign's power, and fails to attain victory. When the general knows taking whole, deception can be a part of genuineness. And so the means by which an enlightened sovereign and a wise general act, and so are victorious over others and achieve merit superior to the multitudes, this is foreknowledge. Foreknowledge cannot be grasped from ghosts and spirits, cannot be inferred from events, cannot be projected from calculation. It must be grasped from people's knowledge. Knowledge leads to victory. Spies lead to knowledge. The general seeks insight into the enemy's processes and procedures from the inside out. The goal is not merely advance warning, but understanding how something set in motion will turn out. Foreknowledge is especially difficult to obtain, since it concerns things that no one can see. Spirit divination presupposes a hidden reality with power over events. Inference assumes that precedents will hold good into the future. Extrapolation is distanced from the intimate situation of here and now. Each has its use, but one can be sure about the future only through knowledge that is immediate, concrete, detailed, and complex in human ways. Its best source is direct perception. And so there are five kinds of spy to employ. There is the native spy, the inner spy, the turned spy, the dead spy, and the living spy. When the five spies arise together and no one knows their Tao, this is what is meant by spirit-like web. It is the treasure of the people's sovereign. The living spy returns and reports. Employ the native spy from among the local people. Employ the inner spy from among their officials. Employ the turned spy from among enemy spies. The dead spy spreads false information abroad. I order my spy to know it, and he transmits it to the enemy spy. Your spies come from every part of society, bringing knowledge of the full range of enemy life. When their activities are woven together, they become an elusive network that is everywhere at once. No one knows where they might appear. They are a great treasury of knowledge. And so, in the kinship of the three armies, no kinship is more intimate than that of a spy. No reward is more generous than that for a spy. No affair is more secret than that of a spy. If not a sage, one cannot employ spies. If not humane, one cannot send out spies. If not subtle and secret, one cannot obtain a spy's treasure. Secret, secret, there is nothing for which one cannot employ spies. When the affairs of a spy are heard before they are underway, the spy and those who have been told 
all die. The standard text has, If one is not humane and righteous, citing the paramount virtues of Confucianism. The bamboo text has only humane, which in its non-Confucian use means kindly or generous. Later editors apparently tried to bring the Sun Tzu under Confucian sway. A sage is the highest wisdom holder in the Chinese world. His supreme qualities of mind give him the ability to shape the present and know the future. The spy is an authentic source of knowledge that must be cherished, nurtured, and rewarded. In this relationship, everything is intensified, the kinship, the potential for new knowledge, the consequences. This weapon is so sharp that it must be kept concealed, otherwise it may unpredictably injure itself or you. This has its own rules. One must be a sage to use spies, to feel their vulnerability, to keep oneself and them from jeopardy, to manage the delicacy of their operations amid the enemy, to interpret and apply their knowledge, to handle reversals and false information. Things can go quickly and disastrously wrong. In sum, the army one wishes to strike, the walled city one wishes to attack, and the person one wishes to kill. One must first know the family name and given name of the defending general, his intimates, the steward, the gatekeeper, and attendants. I order my spy to surely seek them out and know them. The more extreme your action, the more detailed your foreknowledge must be. I must seek out the enemy's spies who come to spy on me. Accordingly, I benefit them, direct them, and then release them. Thus a turned spy can be obtained and employed. With this knowledge, the local spy and the inner spy can thus be obtained and sent out. With this knowledge, the dead spy thus spreads false information and can be sent to tell the enemy. With this knowledge, the living spy can thus be sent out on time. One must know the matter of the five spies. Knowing it surely lies in the turned spy. Thus one cannot but be generous with a turned spy. Knowledge from the turned spy is a foundation for all the general's action. Even more than a captured charioteer, he must be rewarded and brought around. Through him, the general may learn the intentions behind enemy action. Thus, he can direct the activities of all other spies, defeating the enemy by cutting down their strategy. Directing the turned spy requires particular attention. He has already once betrayed his lord, and he may betray you as well. You must be most intimate with him. In usual circumstances, the general holds firm the boundaries. Here he is sending people behind enemy borders and welcoming others within his own. The general then must be able to maintain or cross boundaries without regard to how others see them. He is beyond predictability, holding a vision that is invisible until the result shows victory. Like forms of esoteric knowledge, spying can be dangerous, unappealing, shifty, and profound. It must be kept secret.
When Yen arose, Ezur was in Sha. When Zhou arose, Liu was in Yen. According to legend, Ezur and Liu Ya were noble ministers who betrayed their evil rulers to virtuous invaders. The Sun Tzu is arguing that these men of highest reputation were in fact turned spies. This interpretation has not been accepted by later Confucian readers. The preceding two lines are from the received text. The bamboo text is fragmentary here, but adds the following. When Yen arose, Su Qin was in Qi. The figure of Su Qin appears in legends of persuasion and betrayal from the years around 300 BCE. Tradition made Sun Tzu a contemporary of Confucius, 551 to 479, but most scholars now date the principal assemblage of his lineage text to sometime in the 4th century BCE. The presence of someone like Su Qin implies either a later date for its compilation, the continuing permeability of its boundaries after the mid-300s, or both. Only if the enlightened ruler and wise general can use people of superior knowledge as spies will they surely achieve great merit. These are essentials of the military. The three armies rely on them and act. Superior knowledge is difficult to attain. It depends on people like Yi Zhe or Liu Ya, who can keep their competing alliances separate and maintain the consistency of their disparate realms. Knowledge is the basis for any action. Superior knowledge will assure victory.